Um, I have been teaching an intensive course on the foundations of mindfulness and uh, looking how to weave these teachings together with limbic injury. Does anyone know what limbic injury is? Nobody. Goodness. Okay, so when our brain gets jammed into stress responses, all right, when we get stuck into freeze or anxiety or depression or when we've got... um, 50 chemical sensitivities and food sensitivities when we've got chronic fatigue syndrome. Those are often manifestations of limbic injury. And curiously enough, the meditation instructions that we normally are absolutely wonderful, fabulous, can be problematic when we have a limbic injury. (laughs) Because we need very specific instructions and sometimes the instructions that we get from meditation are not what we need. So I've been putting these things together. How to use the regular meditation and when we've got these kinds of stresses that are kind of, our systems are a little bit jammed. And... um, so one of the themes that I have been talking about is uh, is the factors of awakening. In fact, I just did a day-long retreat in this intensive course about it. Um, so I, I want to talk about the factors of awakening in daily life. Um, the factors of awakening are a little bit like, well, we have... I lived in England for 20 years when I was part of the monastery there. And in England, there's all kinds of buildings that are um, different than we've got here because they're ancient. Like down the street from Chitter's Monastery was a building that was 900 years old. There's a special book, Dooms something, Dooms Blooms, anyway, I can't remember it. But it's in this book that's about ancient buildings in England. So they have cornerstones, and the cornerstone holds up the building. So we don't build so much with cornerstones in a modern world. But a cornerstone holds up the structure. And in our Dharma teachings, there's some core teachings that are cornerstones. One of the core teachings is the foundations of mindfulness. Now, the foundations of mindfulness is not only a cornerstone, but it's also a hologram. Because many parts in that teaching contain the whole teaching, okay? So so you've got nesting dolls, holograms, and cornerstones, all right? So the cornerstones are the foundations of mindfulness, the Four Noble Truths, um, factors of awakening, and working with and understanding the hindrances, And tonight, I'm going to be weaving these cornerstones into the talk, uh, looking at the factors of awakening and how they are part of these teachings on the foundations of mindfulness, how the the factors of awakening are, are by themselves something that we can use in our meditation practice, like we were doing in the guided meditation and how they can be a support for balancing the hindrances. So, fasten your seatbelts. Here we go. (laughs) 
So the one cornerstone, the foundation of mindfulness, is this is a really central part of the Buddha's teaching. So of all of the many thousands of discourses the Buddha gave, this one stands out uh, head and shoulders above many of them as if there was only one of the Buddha's suttas to learn, to read, to know about. It's the foundations of mindfulness. And that gives us specific instructions on how to track our experience as well as frames and reference in relating to them. And as we understand how to work with our body and feelings and mind objects and categories of um, experience in relationship to the Dhamma, we learn how to shift our aperture of awareness from being focused on only external things to learning how to move between external and internal. External and internal. And as we do that, we notice our body sensations, our feelings, and our responses to those feelings. So as we shift our attention from what's happening out, what's going on around us, what people are saying or doing, what's happening with the noises, to learning what's going on in my body, how's my breath, what are my feelings and responses to it, then what happens is is that we drop in, we track our responses, and that gives us the capacity to have different choices. Our capacity to do this is directly connected to our ability to respond to what's arising. So, Tonight, in the guided meditation, the invitation was to use the factors of awakening as our meditation objects. So the foundations of mindfulness takes us into our body, feelings, and mind states, learning how to observe them. And the fourth foundation looks at a whole bunch of different things. One of them are the hindrances. One of them is the factors of awakening. One of them is the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths is another one of these holograms. It contains within it all of the teachings. So we've got these lists, we've got these cornerstones, we've got these nesting dolls, and we've got these holograms. In case you wanted it, very simple. So I wanted to talk about the factors of awakening tonight. One of the cornerstones that we can use in our practice. So what are they? Seven of them. I'm going to use my fingers because I can't remember if I don't. The first one is mindfulness. The second one is investigation. The third one is energy. The fourth is joy or rapture. The fifth is relaxation. The sixth is concentration, and the seventh is equanimity. So when we just take a moment and look at each of these seven factors with a little bit more depth, mindfulness, the Pali word for that is sati, and that is the ability to maintain awareness of what's happening. It's the muscle of the mind that can stay with something. Turn towards and stay with something. Investigation or dhamma is the Pali word for it, is the curiosity or the capacity to look from different perspectives at what's happening. Energy or wiriya 
is the determination or the effort to do something, to start it, to stay with it, and to follow through. So I'm really good at starting. I'm pretty okay at sustaining, and I'm poor at following through. Anybody else? (laughs) So we have different strengths in our energy. Some are really good at starting. Some are great at following through and poor at starting. So it shakes up. We're different in all of these things. Joy or rapture, the Pali word for it is pity, is the pleasure that we feel in our body or our mind from doing something. And so the body joy is like this tingling or bubbling. Sometimes we can experience it as light. And the rapture or bliss is the mental joy, the uplift, the mood brightening when we are experiencing this joy. So relaxation or tranquility is the ease that we feel. And it's uh, one measure of it is the degree to which our body feels relaxed. And, you know, it's curious to me that in basic meditation instructions, they don't talk about relaxing. It's assumed that people are relaxed. And when I went to Asia, well, I've been a few times, but the first time I went was in 1987, so a few years ago. I didn't see people doing uptight, you know? It's just like, that wasn't like on the menu list in the same way that it's like, you know, one of the top three for us, you know? So different cultures have different tendencies. So relaxation was never taught because I think it was just assumed. But for us, we can't make that assumption. So... So concentration, the sixth of these faculties, is the Pali word for it is samadhi, and it's a calm, one-pointed state of mind or clear awareness. It's the collectedness. It's the ability to stay with something. So we're sitting here, and somebody rustles or coughing, and we're staying with it. We're not out. So the question then is, is that how many sustained your concentration when you had your cookies? (laughs) Awesome, we had one hand up, great. So equanimity, the Pali word for that is upeka. And it's the ability to accept reality as it is without craving or aversion. Okay, It's the ability just to be with things when it's up, it's down, or whatever. There's just kind of an even, steady, even-mindedness, a capacity to stay with it. So the factors of awakening might have this really big, lofty idea or name to it. But in reality, they're everyday qualities that we can see and notice in very, very ordinary things. So I would like to run through some ordinary experiences and then see if we can bring it into something that might be a little bit um, more tricky or or also familiar for us. Okay. So we start with mindfulness, the capacity to bring sustained attention to what's arising, to see them, ponder them, consider them without being identified. And so mindfulness itself is a cornerstone. And it is a cornerstone around which these other factors coalesce, galvanize, and are balanced. 
the Buddha said that there is nothing so detrimental as unwise attention. And we can notice that. You know, so when we get knocked out of balance, we can really spin if we're focusing in an unskillful way. And unskillful is the thing that's triggering and activating us. Okay? And he also said that there is nothing so beneficial as wise and skillful attention. So mindfulness, he's establishing as a cornerstone in our practice. So let's take it in the Dharma into the kitchen. Last night I made a meal. And I was making a pot of steamed veggies, collard greens, kale, and black uh, rice. Okay? So I had five different veggies. I had celery root, Brussels sprouts, beets, and collard greens. Four. I can't count. (laughs) So I needed to peel them and chop them, and then I needed to get them into the steamer in the right order because they actually needed different amounts of time. Okay? So... Investigation is the curiosity. It's the ability to wonder and to look at things from different perspectives. The ability to stay focused with the vegetable peeling until I would get it all done is concentration. The curiosity or the discernment to be able to figure out the order that the veggies went into the pot is part of the quality of of investigation. Energy or determination is the effort to, to peel, to chop, and to stick it in the pot. Okay? So joy was like the sense of uplift. So I cut into the bead and it's like beautiful. This absolutely gorgeous red color. You know? It's just lovely. And and then I figured it out. So I don't do it by math. I just do it by intuition. So I got them all in the pot. I got them all cooked, and they came out, and they were all perfect. So it's like, yes. (laughs) Success. So tranquility is this calm or easy state. And so the tranquility is sometimes when things don't go so well. So when I was cooking the doll, I didn't have any, I was reheating it. I didn't put any oil or water in it, so it stuck to the pot. You know, so you know how it is when things stick to the pot. There's this feeling of, uh, you know, uh, I've got a big job to wash it at the end. But tranquility is the sense of it's all right. I'll let it soak a few minutes and I've got it. I've got this, you know. So it's the calmness and then the equanimity of not getting agitated by the things that are arising. So energy and investigation can combine when we're experimenting with new foods or we're putting different things together or when we're cooking without a recipe, which is the way I cook. I don't know how to cook with a recipe. (laughs) And so when we finish with like the specific task, like, okay, so I got everything in the pot and then I didn't have to focus so hard so that I can think about different things or I can go check and see if there's any messages that I need to respond to or all the kinds of stuff that we normally do. 
So let me share another example. And two weeks ago, I went out. It was Monday is usually my quiet day. And my quiet day, I covet because they are my day. I get to do whatever I want in order to rest or restore. And like today, I went to Point Reyes and I walked along the water and I was just, ah, uh, it's just so nourishing. And so I had set up a massage. I don't get massages very often. So this was like really super exciting. I went out and I got in my car and I turned on the ignition and there's this like booming loud noise and I knew exactly what it was. So I get out of the car, I crawl underneath the car and lo and behold, my carburetor was not there. (laughs) So... Mindfulness is aware of the car making a big noise. Curiosity is the just double check and think, I think I have got this, but let's just check and see where it's at. And then discernment to go and call and say, sorry folks, I can't come to the appointment. And then I called my owner, who's really, really super handy. We're talking about things. And he said, why don't you check if your insurance will cover this? And I thought, Great idea. So call the insurance person. The insurance says, no problem. We've got this covered. All you need to do is you need to take it to a muffler shop and save the receipts. It might be good if you do a police report because it'll support your case. We've got this covered. So I said, call up a muffler shop that can sort this out that day because I want my car back like now. I call them up. I get it organized. I'm on my way and it's completely terrifying (laughs) driving the car with this noise and the acceleration is completely different because the back pressure I don't know how it's different it's completely different and I was supposed to go on the freeway for 20 minutes it's like this is not happening so I pull over to the side of the road okay what are my options that's investigation what are my choices so I text Leslie who's my personal assistant who's sort of like able to figure out everything. I said, this is the deal. I'm on my way to the muffler shop. It's terrifying. She said, why don't you call AAA and have them tow? That's really smart. So I call AAA and I have them come. So they're on their way. I'm waiting. And then what happens is that the insurance claims guy calls me 10 minutes before AAA comes. He said, the other person didn't give you the right information. There's absolutely no guarantee at all that the insurance will pay for this if you take it to the muffler shop. It might be completely out of your pocket. So I think, oh. (laughs) We cancel the AAA. We get his guy to take it. I drive back home. So there's this mixture of joy that I didn't have $2,800 out of my pocket, frustration that the person gave me the wrong information, happiness that it happened all at the same time, that I got it in time, you know, and bum that I don't get my car back. So it's like, you know, mind states, happy, sad, happy, sad, happy, sad, happy, sad, happy, sad. And then there's this kind of sense of I'm all right. I've got my house. I've got enough food. I can do the laundry and the sink. I'm good. I've got people around me. I can meditate here. I'm fine. And then, you know, this, you know, we live in a crazy world. And if people's needs were met, they wouldn't be doing things like that. And so it's just like, you know, the heartbreak of recognizing the absolute 
unbelievable inequities that exist in this world, why people feel like this is what they need to do, you know. So all of these different factors, you know, mindfulness, investigation, calm, equanimity, discernment, calming myself down, checking things out, it's all playing out right there, okay? And so it's not like the factors of awakening needs to happen only when we're sitting on the cushion. It doesn't. It's all over the place, you know? So let's fast forward to a few days from now or a week from now or whenever it is. We're all entering in holiday season. Now for some, family Thanksgiving is like fabulous. For others, not so much. (laughs) It's evocative. Families coming together If you are fortunate enough to have family, for people who don't have family, it can be tender or lonesome or sad. I lost my mom six months ago. This is the first Thanksgiving without her. And I'm entering the season all over the map, feeling restless and agitated and kind of like distracted and like, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, you know, that kind of feeling. And so we can bring the qualities of the factors of awakening to whatever is present. We can notice what's here. Are we feeling excited? Are we feeling apprehensive? Okay? When we understand we have choice about where we focus our attention, when we're feeling a kind of uplift with joy, you know, that can be like like riding the current, the air current, that can just take us to places that are just really nourishing. And we can allow our attention to settle on that so that it suffuses our body and our heart and our mind. If you're like I am, feeling apprehensive about this holiday, then I need to be really careful to relax, to calm down, to do things that are nourishing, to reach out to the people who I know have my back, to spend time in nature, to elongate my out-breath every time I catch myself feeling restless or agitated or wishing it were otherwise, you know? So that then I can focus. So today I went out to this beautiful place. I'd never been there before and it was perfect because I didn't have a lot of energy but I went to a beach and I had my picnic lunch and and then I walked in this woods and I was like the only person there and then I could feel the softness of the floor and just my nervous system starting to calm as I connected with the feet steps and feeling the, the, the freshness of the air, the beauty of it. So as my nervous system starts to calm, I have more capacity to settle and to be present and to notice nuances of what's happening and to feel more a sense of like a, being part of a, of a wholeness, just part of a field of nature. And in that field of nature, there's more resilience to be with the various different feelings that arise. It's like, This is my family, you know. This is where I feel a sense of oneness and complete connection. And this family has never left me, you know. So I can feel settled here. 
But, you know, I'm imagining for each of us, we're going to have our own different situations coming this holiday with some sense of joy and gladness and some sense of apprehension. And so we can be wise and discerning about the way that we bring the skills of meditation to what's arising. So, for example, mindfulness is the kingpin. It's one of the cornerstones, and that's really helpful in order to be able to discern what's happening. When we're feeling restless or anxious or agitated, we can bring calm. We can increase our out-breath, which then supports tranquility. We can um, go for walks in nature. When we're having a cookie monster festival and getting lost in the dressing or in the pumpkin pie or in too many glasses of wine, then we can, we can do things that allow us to feel connected with settledness and stillness. And when we're concentrated, it gives us more perspective and choice around our desire. When we're feeling angry or agitated or averse. Again, mindfulness is really important just to notice that that's there. And we can do things that help us settle, that help us calm down, that help us collect and bring us more capacity to focus our attention. When we have eaten way too much and we're feeling completely tired, (laughs) we can arouse energy, go for a walk, wash your face with something cold, be engaged in some kind of riveting conversation. We can bring forward curiosity about looking at what's present in the situation that's really interesting to talk about. And so we can use these different factors to balance the calm and concentration, balance the restlessness and the anxiety, the doubt. The energy balances the sloth and torpor. Mindfulness and concentration balance desire and ill will. When we can learn how to find places of of equanimity in times that otherwise are not easy at all. So in when I lived in the monastery, you know, occasionally we would have members of our community who would think that they had been enlightened, that they'd had complete liberating experiences. And so we would nonchalantly just invite them to spend more than three consecutive days with their family. <laughs> And if there was any possibility that their 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 um, sense of attainment was premature, that would usually become evident <laughs> after a day and a half with the family, <laughs> because family are set up completely hardwired to 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 know what our tender spots are and to evoke them. They also can know how to feed and nourish us so we can have both if we are fortunate enough to have that, to have family that know how to feed and nourish and take care of us and know how to support us and mirror for us our own goodness. Both are possible. 
Yeah. But when we bring the meditation practice and let it come into fruition, we can use it for things like cooking. We can use it for things like navigating stolen uh, catalytic converters. We can use it for holidays and bring these qualities into fullness as a way of supporting us in those interactions. It's not only about what we do on meditation. It's about what we do in our daily life. But for people who are here or people who are listening, who are intrepid meditators, then we can also use these qualities in our meditation practice, just like we did this evening. We start with mindfulness of feeling what's happening. The invitation was to use the standing posture. And then I invited relaxation. Because in our culture, and particularly with the way things are these days, we have lots of reason to be tense and anxious. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on that's just really unfortunate. It's scary, you know, heartbreaking, actually. So we need to start with deliberately relaxing, making a point of relaxing. Noticing the parts of our body, inviting them to relax. So we invite that quality of tranquility into our bodies. And then I invited staying with the breath and elongating the long breath so that we move from relaxing our body to relaxing our nervous system and our mind. And when our nervous system and our mind relax... How many noticed that there was a settling? Just a natural settling. Hands up if that was your experience. Yes, there was many of you for whom there was just this natural settling. So when that body is settled and the mind can settle, then it's easier, it's not such a monumental effort to stay present. And then the invitation was to shift focus and stay with the inhalation. And to allow the uplift, the ease, the lightness from the inhalation. How many could feel a modicum of that? Just a glimmer of that, some sense of that. Yes, so there were people who could feel that, yeah. And then when we focus on it, then for those for whom that's available, it becomes like a water slide of just gliding when we're focusing on something that's joyful, in a body, in a mind that's relaxed, it isn't so hard to stay present. It's just natural, just easy. And then, then there was the invitation to suffuse it, to let it permeate, to let it move through. How many had a sense of being able to let it expand? A sense of of movement. Some of you, yes. Some of you for whom that was the case. Yeah. And so then there's this sense of a greater feeling of joy. And so this bliss in in our body, this is blameless joy. There's no residue. You don't have a hangover from this kind of joy. You don't have to walk eight miles in order to recover from this kind of joy. (laughs) 
then it can sometimes move into the mind. And again, when the mind feels blissful, when it feels easeful, then that's also a natural place where attention can settle, concentrate. And as we become more and more collected, then we can see things clearer. We're not so distracted. So in our meditation practice, then we can notice thoughts, we can notice moods, we can notice feelings. But in our daily life, we can notice things like the flower, just the, the beautiful hue and the, the texture, the shape of the flower. So oftentimes in our lives, what's happening is that we're so distracted that we're actually missing the lovely things that are all around us. We miss moments of kindness. We miss somebody that actually stopped and waited for us to pull in the traffic. We, we miss a smile. Or we can't stay with the sunset because we're too busy. We've got to go to the next thing. Or we've got to check our phone for the messages. Or what about the, the, the conversation that's not finished? Did they contact me? You know, so it's like, you know, or... And so we miss the sunset. We miss noticing that the birds gather in the treetops together to watch the sunset. So when our, our collected, we are collected enough, we can pause, breathe in the sunset, feel our connection and community with the birds who are all watching it together. And just let that nourish us. So one of the things that happens in the meditation is is that we have more joy in just ordinary things. But it also opens our heart so that we have more capacity to feel the kinds of qualities of kindness and compassion. And joy in others' joy. Just looking at other people having joy. How many people enjoyed watching somebody else eat a cookie tonight? (laughs) And so this joy that opens up the qualities of heart then also give us the capacity to know that sense of even-mindedness when things are up and down. And the ability to shift our perspective so that it it helps, you know? So, you know, I was posting on Facebook that my my this catalytic converter got stolen and 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 that I had I had gotten a this thing called a cat strap, which is reinforced metal so that it's harder to cut through so it'll be a deterrent the next time you know because every time I was going out to the car I was like oh is it gone (laughs) is it still there is it gone (laughs) so I the car you have to put the car on a rack so I put it back I brought it to the muffler shop to have them install it and you know it wasn't clear how to do it so I got under the under there with them and we were figuring out how to do it. And so I went to the shop 
of the person who's the manager of the shop. I said, how much do I owe you for, for the lads putting on the, this cat strap? And she looked at me. She said, bring them some cookies. <laughs> what a wonderful thing to do, to bring them some cookies. So I went and I got some cookies and I came back. And so, you know, I'm Facebook, so I'm posting all of this. I went, I went, I got it, my cat strap put on and I paid with cookies, you know, because I want to share the joy. I want to share the joy of, you know, in this world, which is so completely consumeristic, sometimes there are these sparkles of loveliness, you know, and it's just lovely to share it. So somebody wrote a comment that she was encouraged to carve on her catalytic converter the VIN number of the car. And I thought, well, what I would like to do is to set up an alarm system that if somebody starts cutting into the catalytic converter, loud chanting goes off. (laughs) If anyone can figure out how to engineer that, come talk to me afterwards. You know, this world is filled with so much sadness. People are not stealing catalytic converters if they've got enough. They just won't be stealing catalytic converters if they have enough. And so we've got lots of things that need to fix. But, you know, in the meantime, we can have some fun and play, you know, and enjoy and look at things from the spreading of blessings rather than the spreading of fear, you know. So... This is our meditation practice and this is what we can do. We can bring these factors and they can support us in our daily life. But they can also support us so that we then have more ability to understand what happens when we actually let go. When we let go of our ideas or our beliefs. When we let go of our criticisms of ourself, when we let go of our thinking of ourselves as somehow less than or insufficient, when we connect with what's underneath. So mindfulness is a cornerstone, but it's not the whole path. But the whole path we can see comes into fruition with the Four Noble Truths, where there's the ability to touch what's difficult, to understand that when we have contraction or tightness or resistance, there's a cause for it. When we touch the cause of it, then there can be the possibility of relaxation, of release. And there's a path that supports us in this. And this path, part of the path is mindfulness, but part of the path is spiritual friendship. So what was interesting for me when I was teaching this day-long retreat on the factors of awakening last Saturday, I pulled out a graph that Bhikkhu Bodhi had put together on on the hindrances And what was interesting for me was that in every one of the hindrances, the the only one thing that was 
listed as a support was being with wise friends. That is a support for all of the challenges that we navigate. Being with people who are wise and discerning and help able to mirror our own goodness, help shift our perspective so that we can get unstuck from the trenches and we can feel choices. So as we're navigating this upcoming time with, with the holidays, know who your people are and reach out to them. And if you're going into something that's particularly challenging, set it up in advance that, that you can, you know. One of the nuns in the monastery just came from a family. The mom was anorexic when she was um, pregnant with her. And they're very, very complicated family dynamics. And, you know, she was describing the family situation and how hard it was for her to be with her family. It was just like she, she just absolutely couldn't. She couldn't. She could not find the stability to navigate it without just getting lost into hell realms. And she wanted to go back and visit because her grandmother and grandfather were her primary caregivers for a big chunk of her childhood and they were frail and, you know, their time was coming but she just didn't have it to do it herself. So I said, well, it's simple. I'll come with you. And she was like, oh, wow, never thought of that, you know. Never thought of going back home with with a friend. And I could see when I was there, she wasn't making it up. I mean, she wasn't exaggerating. It absolutely was not possible for her to find equanimity on her own. The dynamics were like slippery slopes to hell realms. Like in an instant, she was dysregulated, you know? And it's not like, you know, I did a lot. I just was around and, you know, just, hi, how's it going? You want a cup of tea? Shall we go for a walk now? Let's go for a walk now. You know, it wasn't rocket science. You know, just breathing next to her. So sometimes when situations are challenging, what we need is actually to really rely on our friends because we don't have it ourselves. And that actually is the result of mindfulness and discernment to recognize that. And so she didn't have it to figure it out to ask me, but she absolutely had it to say, oh yes, that sounds great. And so in our lives, we can both see as well as offer, you know, when a friend doesn't have it to be with their family alone, you know. Or we can have friendsgivings, where it's just a bunch of friends that get together who've chosen to be together. So queer folk or trans folk, or all kinds of folk 
sometimes don't have family that they can go home to. We need to find our friends who we can spend time with. And so, having friends is a really important thing. Spiritual friends. Not just people that make nice talk. It's somebody who calls us out on the kind of story that we're telling ourselves or the incessant negative loop and say, time out, I'm sorry, you can't trash yourself in front of me like that. It just ain't happening. You know? And who has the capacity to mirror your goodness and to reflect your beauty, your dignity. When we get lost in the tangles of self-doubt. Somehow we feel insufficient. Everybody else might be worthy, but we're not. So when we're navigating self-doubt like that and we have somebody who just looks us in the eye, they don't even have to say a lot, you know, but sees you. really sees you. That can just allow all kinds of things to shift. And so the tapes can soften and the stories can calm down. And what we're left with when all of that stuff falls away is this radiant, luminous presence. It's a kind of joy that's not so dependent on the conditions It's a kind of joy that has kind of a timelessness or a pervasive nature to it. That's what we're practicing for. That's what we're doing. So for me, I feel really delighted when I'm able to teach. It's always a privilege. And this course that I mentioned that I was doing, this intensive is nourishing for me because there's a group of committed people who are together for four months and we meet once a week and then we have day-longs once a month. I meet with them one-on-one. So it's we're not all starting from ground zero every time. We can watch each other grow. We can develop a fabric of relatedness. We can learn how to support each other to get to know how to dial in with attunement with each other so that it is supportive. So these are the kinds of things that nourish me is when I get to watch others grow. So I had the sign-out sheet out there in the back in case that's something that's of interest to you. If you'd like to be part of an intensive Then sign your name up and I'll let you know the next one that's happening. This one, the theme was rewiring for joy. And I'll be doing a retreat on that theme with a dear friend, Deborah Eden Tull, at the Multiversity. And so that's a five-day dropping in to exactly these topics. Using the foundations of mindfulness and working it so that when we are navigating limbic injury or trauma fields, we can do it in a way that allows our systems to relax rather than to be 
exacerbated or further challenged, further stressed. So I want to pause now and shift gears and invite you to comment or to ask questions or to share. And so I invite the volunteers to run the mics if anyone has anything to speak up. And I wish I could invite those of you who are streaming, but we don't have a way yet to do that. Ask your questions. And if you've got behind the flowers, you're going to have to move because I can't see you very good. Comments, questions, impact. Silence. How lovely. (laughs) I have a Prius, 2003 Prius, and they are notorious for having their catalytic converter stolen. Mm -hmm. Notorious. Yes, please. So let's give your mic and ask you to repeat it. How do you heal limbic injury? Or even know if you have one. So how do you know that you have one? I went through the Santa Rosa fires, 2017, and I got crazy, crazy sick. And nothing was showing up on the tests that made any sense. I mean, eventually things started showing up I had Lyme disease that was getting activated. So that was part of the picture. Toxicity was another part of the picture. And limbic injury was a third part of the picture. So how did I know I had it? I started getting uh, signs because I was going to different uh, doctors to try and figure out what was going on. And they were asking me different questions. And one of them said, I think what you've got going on here is limbic injury which I'd never heard of it before, so I didn't know. So then I looked up the Dynamic Neural Retraining Program website, and then they've got a bunch of symptoms of what it looks like. So if you're chronically hypervigilant or anxious or depressed, if you've got chronic fatigue syndrome, if you've got multiple chemical sensitivity, or if you've got fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue if you've got um, uh, there's a bunch of of symptoms that are classic from limbic injury you can have them for other reasons and you can have limbic injuries that don't have those particular symptoms So when you've got something like that going on, then what you do is you put yourself in a bubble and you focus on what's neutral or positive. So in our regular meditation instruction, they say be with what is. And when you've got limbic injury, you ain't being with what is. You touch the painful thing and you shift your focus as quickly as possible to something that's neutral or something that is nourishing and positive and light. And so, you know, it's like, all right, so anybody who gets activated or triggered, it's like there's a shoot and you're in a hell realm. And that hell realm is really deep and dark and thick and it's really hard to get out of it. So when you're in that hell realm, you don't want to focus on hell. 
You want to do everything except focus on the specific details of what that particular hell realm feels like. You want to count the windows. You want to count the chairs. You want to count yellow things or green things. You want to look at the flower. You want to do laughing. Laughing yoga is fabulous. (laughs) Because it shifts your system. You can be absolutely in hell realms. And then in two minutes, you're laughing and it washes your system. Your body doesn't know. The difference between like a deep belly laugh and faking laughter. And so all of the positive neurochemistry washes through your system and it feels wonderful. Yeah. You call up a buddy and you do the neuroplasticity buddy round so that you are witnessed in focusing on things that are positive. That's how you heal limbic injury. So when you've got limbic injury, just like if you've got a broken wrist, you need to put it in a cast and a plaster because you can't handle weight, right? It can't do it. So when you've got limbic injury, it doesn't have the capacity to work with things which are difficult. It gets stuck into them. It's like it doesn't have a relaxed attention. It's like super glue. It just goes to everything that's difficult there's one tiny little thing that's difficult, it'll go there and glue onto it. That's limbic injury. <coughs> Catastrophizing. Seeing everything that's difficult. Seeing running all of the negative tapes and believing them as if it's God-given and truth. So, some of us navigate that with regularity. You know, that kind of stuff when it actually turns into like something that needs its own separate treatment, I don't know how to tell you specifically. But many of us go there. And I'm grateful that more and more meditation teachers are learning the skills how to navigate this. Because in any given group of people, there's going to be a large percentage of people who are dealing with this. Does that answer your question? Good question. I thought of something you said about follow-through. And you're not, that your follow-through is eh. And I thought, mine too. But then I listened and I thought, wow, your follow-through was really good. (laughs) And then I thought, hmm, maybe my follow-through isn't as bad as I think. (laughs) Sweet, sweet, sweet. So I, it's part of my limbic injury. It's actually part of my brain stuff. So I notice it's easier for me to start and sustain things. Some things are much harder. So Dharma talks for me are not a problem. It's like I get plugged into something and it just comes through me. Paperwork, organization, planning, it's a different story. You know? So... There's some things that you would never know. Other things you can really tell. You know? So it depends on how dialed in you are and what topics we're, t- we're, we're discussing as to whether or not it's obvious or not. One of the things you did that was so good is you called immediately to cancel your appointment. And then you called the muffler immediately. And then you called a friend. And I thought, oh, follow through, follow through, follow through. Right. Yeah. 
And I have that too. Paperwork? <laughs> right. Right, right. So some things, it's just like, oh, it's just so much harder. But with some things, it's much more natural. Yeah. I'm going like, to start seeing my paperwork differently. Right. So the kitchen. Okay, so you can have me in the kitchen with five different things going at the same time. Five different things. Each has its own timing, rhythm, temperature. And I've got it covered. Right? But paperwork? Oh, oh. Calendaring? Oh. So... Some things are easier than others. Yeah. In the back, please. Yes. Um, I really just want to say thank you. I come here for various retreats and uh, Monday night talks, and I just want to say thank you for bringing the awareness about trauma into mindfulness. It is not discussed enough, and if you're holding trauma... Um, and being asked to be mindful in some of the particular ways we are asked, it, it really only makes accessing mindfulness uh, harder. And I also want to thank you um, for bringing up some very significant equity issues. They're also not discussed here enough at Spirit Rock, and it's a very isolated place at times. So I just want to give you a shout-out and say thank you very much for bringing that into the room. Thank you for acknowledging and noticing. I appreciate it. Yeah. In the back. I guess for me, uh, I find it very interesting that we're living in a really strange time in a lot of ways. And one of the things that's, that's coming up is mental challenges. And up until now, a lot of the discussion has been around mental illness or uh, mental disease or things like that. But the idea of limbic injury, and injury is something that actually can be worked with and can be con- conceivably healed and possibly strengthened. Um, and I guess in a way, some of the things that you're talking about remind me of how, uh, for me, the um, that caring isn't a strength that you develop most people don't seem to develop, or most people that I've met, I've definitely not met most people, so most people that I've met, they develop it because they're challenged, and they get to go to the caring gym to develop those muscles, or they continue to be weak around that. But just it's just that idea that being able to approach it from a different direction, and the discussion's up, and uh, and again, people that don't know that they possibly could have been injured or they're too, too sturdy or durable to force their way through and have other um, experiences um, because they don't particularly heal or there's not a conversation that says, this is an injury, you can get through this. They just, I guess in a way that just the idea that there's a lot of scar tissue uh, that doesn't necessarily get treated or healed. Thank you. Yes, so the particular story of the person who figured out the dynamo retraining system, I can't remember all the specific things that had happened to her, but I don't remember what was the, inst- what was the initiating, triggering event. I don't remember that. But she had many things that were starting to happen, and then she was living in her house, and then all of a sudden she started to become allergic to the electricity in the house. No joke. 
she became allergic to electricity. So when I was crazy sensitive after I had gotten exposed to mold, I remember being able to feel the the irradiation in my cell phone. I could feel it. Ordinarily, I can't. But when I was crazy sensitive, you know, that was when I was, you know, had food sensitivities to 50 things or whatever I could. So she began to figure out that it it wasn't an out there thing. It was an in here thing. And the thing that's so amazing is if anybody has, has done any study of dependent co-arising, that whole pathway talks about that what happens is, is that ignorance primes our habits. And then our habits condition our sense bases. So our sense bases are primed based on the habit to look for certain things. So when we have a limbic injury, our body, our senses, our eyes, our ears, our nose, our thoughts are organized around looking for danger in a hypervigilant way. And we find it. Even if it's not ordinarily danger, we perceive it as something that is dangerous. And then because we have perceived something as dangerous, it verifies this hypervigilant mechanism. So we have a loop that's reinforcing. And so what needs to happen is that we need to interrupt that pattern and have the whole thing start to calm down to begin to re-remember things like what calm feels like. So when you've got limbic injury, you don't have easy access to joy. In fact, you feel flatlined. It's completely not available. So have to re-remember how to feel joy. It's like learning how to walk again, you know? And then let it fill us up and suffuse our systems. And then as we remember how to feel joy then we have more choices about what we do with our attention. And so that mechanism where the body is primed to look for danger, there can be a tiny little bit more space around another option. We look to the neutral thing rather than to the scary thing. We remember that the scary thing actually isn't scary. It's just my brain going like this that it's actually a mirage, it's actually not real. And then as we do that, then all kinds of things start to shift, both physically as well as mentally. And so, yes, this is completely cutting-edge medicine. It's not at all um, uh, common. And it's hugely important. And as our social situation gets more intense and there's more gap between those who have and those that don't, as we have more fire seasons and more evacuations and more smoke, what, what did me in was the toxicity. You know, That's what did me, my system in. We're going to have more limbic injuries all around us. And so the more we know how to navigate it for ourselves the more that we understand it as something that is present anytime we have a group of people, the more that we are able to be kind and supportive in a way that is genuinely supportive to each other. And that's a real kindness.
So I think I have time for maybe one more question or comment. Anybody else? In the front here. Hi. Um, you said something about neuroplasticity and buddy something. Buddy rounds. Buddy rounds, yeah. Can you say more about that? Right. So one of the things the way our neuroplasticity works is that we have mirror neurons, which means that we learn not only from doing it ourselves, but from watching somebody else. So um, if you, you can be in a terrible state and you can look at somebody and they're smiling and your system lightens up. You can be watching somebody laugh and you can feel a lot lighter. So there's something in our neurochemistry about watching somebody else if they're in an elevated mood or in a light mind state, it is very impactful. So part of the neuroplasticity program, the DNRS, the Dynamic Neural Retraining Program, is that you partner up and do these rounds with another buddy witnessing you. So the one of the things that I really appreciated about this program is, is that people got really smart and created these WhatsApp groups. And because it's an international community, then there's people all over the place in every time zone doing this. So there were times when I was waking up at three in the morning and I was just like, oh, I can do a buddy round. So I get on the, this is when technology really shines. This is when it really shines. I get on the WhatsApp. I say, anybody available to do a round? It's three o'clock in the morning and somebody in South Africa says, sure, no problem. Two minutes later, we're connected doing this. So in North America, at 3 o'clock in the morning, nobody's up. But in South America or South Africa, it's middle of the day. So we do our little whatever, and I feel much calmer. And I can go back to sleep. So the, the dynamic neural retraining system has a process of establishing mindfulness asserting wisdom, moving back and forth between being kind and loving to yourself, imagining positive things that happened in the past so that you re-remember what joy feels like and bringing that into the future of seeing yourself healthy and well and radiant and filled with vigor, whatever it is that you want your life to be so that you both connect to having experience that as well as what it's like in the future for you to be well again whatever that is for you so I think we've reached the pumpkin hour friends this has been good this has been good I appreciate your care and your attention I appreciate your interest I appreciate your dedication And just before we shift gears, we are sitting with unbelievable privilege to have the capacity to walk in the doors with our two legs by ourselves. Okay? To sit and to listen to this kind of teaching, to be in a place where we feel relaxed enough and safe enough to close our eyes to have teachings that support us developing wisdom and compassion.
There are many people who are not in this room this evening. Our family, our friends, our colleagues at work. Everybody can benefit from wisdom, from compassion, from feeling rooted, from having the presence of wise friends. I would like to ask that the goodness that we feel tonight, the benefits that we have, we share them energetically. the teachers and the lineage holders that have brought forward this teaching, with the land that holds the space, with the volunteers and the staff that make this possible, with our family and friends who are not here, with the people who are needing love and tenderness and calm more than anything and with Mother Earth herself, in her land, in her water, in her air, and all of her creatures, that all living beings everywhere receive the blessings, receive the benefit of our effort to come tonight, to pay attention, to listen, and of the power, the transformative power that these teachings can bring. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.